I received a call in which I engaged in a conversation with a young person recently concerning a friend who uh, was on dope. And this friend uh, gave as a reason for <clears throat> being on dope the fact that uh, through um, LSD trips or some other form of dope, <clears throat> Uh, they had come in contact with God. It had been a, a religious experience, the only religious experience that had any meaning that this person had participated in. And uh, it was being uh, defended on this basis and urged on this basis. What shall we say of this approach to the use of drugs? seems to me that... Uh, the scripture passage that we read this morning applies in various ways and to other related subjects to this question. We read about the sin of Nadab and Abihu. They were the sons of Aaron, the eldest sons of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother, and Aaron was the high priest. We remember that... Moses had been given instructions for the building of the tabernacle, this tent in which uh, God was to be worshipped, in which God would manifest his presence in a miraculous way uh, through what is known as the Shekinah glory, that there would be a divine light in the innermost part of this tabernacle or tent called the Holy of Holies, and uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the box which would contain the Ten Commandments, would be there. And this light would dwell over that box. The top of the box was called the mercy seat. And God said, there will I meet with you, and there will I commune with you. We find that uh, they're being taught how they can approach God through the high priest, who alone could go into this innermost part, and then only once a year, carrying the... Uh, blood of a, an animal that had been sacrificed and uh, this blood sprinkled on the top of the box and then God would forgive their sins. The tabernacle has been instructed, <clears throat> constructed. God has come and filled this tabernacle with his presence as soon as it was completed according to all of his commandments. Aaron and his sons have been consecrated in the manner in which God had stated, uh, sacrifices being offered for them, and then uh, they're being anointed with oil, and uh, this, <clears throat> uh, the blood from the sacrifice being put on the uh, tip of their ear and on the tip of their finger and so on. Uh, all of this has taken place, and uh, only the previous day has uh, this consecration taken place, and uh, the first offering has been offered and uh, God has manifested his acceptance of this offering. And now they themselves decide to go into uh, the tabernacle and there to offer incense before the Lord. 
We read of their act in the first verse of the tenth chapter. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. What was their sin? There are some who feel that it was going into the presence of the Lord drunk. They base it on the ninth verse. Do not drink wine nor strong drink. Uh, Moses is uh, instructed to, or Aaron is instructed by the Lord uh, after this event takes place. Do not drink wine nor strong drink. Thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. Some, uh, looking at that verse, feel that possibly they were drunk when they offered. And it may be that they were. It may be that this uh, was something of the root of their sin in that it led them to deviation in worship. The sin wasn't the drunkenness so much as it was the deviation in worship. As we are told, uh, they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. Now, what does this mean? What is the strange fire? The fire that was to be used in the censer to uh, burn the incense was holy fire, fire from heaven, fire which God himself had provided. When uh, on the previous day uh, Moses and Aaron had offered a sacrifice to the Lord uh, and had gone into the tabernacle and then come back out, fire had suddenly fallen from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. This is described in the last two verses of the previous chapter. Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. Apparently the cloud, in some special way, manifested an outshining, the glory of the Lord. And then there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. God himself had provided this fire, and then he had made provision that this fire was to never go out. It was to be sustained and fed every morning and every evening. He had given specific instructions in the sixth chapter concerning this. Instead, they took fire other than this holy fire and used it. Common fire. And the phrase, which he commanded them not. Here was their sin. They deviated in their worship from the plain word of Jehovah, who had fully and plainly instructed them as to the mode in which he was to be worshipped. There's a great principle involved here. It's known as the regulative principle. The Puritan controversy in England uh, revolved around this great regulative principle. The principle is that that which is instituted or commanded by God alone is true worship. That which is not instituted by God is, for that very reason, false worship. 
Calvin has put it this way, Men who improvise upon the word, though they toil much in outward rites, are yet impious and contumacious, because they will not suffer themselves to be ruled by God's authority. Again, he says, <clears throat> uh, the way, uh, ways of worshiping God are set forth in Scripture. The church must adhere to this with the least possible admixture of human invention. He makes that statement in commenting on John 4, 22, where uh, we read, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Calvin goes on to say in his Institutes, those who introduce newly invented methods of worshiping God really worship and adore the creature of their own distempered imaginations. There was a truth involved in this fire coming from heaven and in this fire alone being used to burn incense. Remember that burnt offering on the altar symbolized a substitute for the sinner. That sinner deserved to be consumed by God's wrath for his sin. But God had provided a substitute, and he consumed the substitute instead, this innocent lamb. The lamb was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fire of God's wrath would fall on the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And he, being our substitute, would pay in full for our sin. All who approached God offering worship and prayer on the basis of Christ's death for them would be accepted. But if we approached in any other way, we would not be accepted. That was the truth involved in the symbolism. They that worship God must worship him in truth. Otherwise, it won't be accepted. There's only one way we can approach God and be accepted. That is through Jesus Christ. For them, it was through God's altar, God's fire, God's lamb. The principle that's involved in worship, this regulative principle, is incorporated into our Westminster Confession of Faith, our doctrinal standards of our denomination, in the chapter that deals with worship. It says this, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Now, a rival view that's held by many is that true worship need not only be that which God commanded, 
but it may also be that which he has not commanded as long as it is not expressly prohibited in Scripture. For example, in Roman Catholic worship, there are a number of things that are not commanded in Scripture. The way in which the host is handled in the Mass, this is not commanded in Scripture, but they would say it's not prohibited. Uh, Again, uh, uh, prayer to Mary is not commanded in Scripture, but they would say it's not prohibited in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, Thou shalt not pray to Mary, they would say. Uh, And so they would base their approach on a different principle, anything not expressly prohibited. Uh, We might say that the principles involved are expressly prohibited. That God is a jealous God. He will not give his honor to another. There are many Protestant churches which, again, and have a number of ceremonies and a lot of symbolism and activities that are nowhere commanded in Scripture, and they would follow this same principle. It's a spurious principle, though, the Puritans argued. They argued something like this. They said, number one, Scripture is a complete guide for the church's faith and practice. We are told that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's given that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Uh, Paul writes to Titus, and he says, I'm writing that you might know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God. They would say, Scripture tells us everything we need to do. It is a full and complete guide to the church's faith and practice. The second principle the Puritans adhered to, Christ has been given exclusive authority for settling the laws and government of his church, and he has made his will known only in Scripture. And the third principle that the Puritans argued, if human additions are allowed in the church, they will subvert and undermine what the Scripture does teach. Once the regulative principle is departed from, there is an inevitable tendency that additions will alter and take away from Scripture. There's no other principle which can keep the church true to the simplicity of the New Testament. Once this general truth is denied, there's no limit that can be put to the introduction of the inventions of men into the government and worship of Christ's house. Once it is conceded that Scripture is not sufficient For the ordering of the church, there is no way of preventing the corruption of her government and worship as it has been corrupted in the Roman Catholic Church. Again, Christian liberty cannot be preserved without the maintenance of the regulative principle. Seeing Christian liberty expressly exempts us altogether from obedience to men's laws not warranted by Christ's word. You remember Christ said that One of the great sins of the Pharisees was that they taught as doctrines the commandments of men. And he said, in so doing, they worship me in vain. That was the sin of Nadab and Abihu. Notice the severity of God in dealing with this sin. 
In the second verse, there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. This fire comes again from before the Lord, straight from that mercy seat. Fire leaps out and finds these two men there in their cloud of incense and strikes them dead right in the holy place. Why did God do this? We have an observation made by Moses. Moses hears about it. It spreads quickly throughout the camp. Aaron and Moses rush to the tabernacle. They go inside, and here lay Aaron's two sons, dead. Moses turns to his brother as they stand there, and he makes this observation. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This it is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh to me, and before all the people I will be glorified. He apparently is referring back to a statement God had made earlier in the book of Exodus at the time that they were at Sinai. And God said, Let the priests which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. They had neglected to honor the Lord, and he had gotten himself honor in the overthrow of these men. They had taught the people by their actions that it was not important to adhere strictly to the laws of God. And God had taught the people by his action that it was extremely important to adhere to his laws. The New Testament holds up this same importance of the law of God. Jesus says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. We're not saved by keeping God's commandments. No man has kept God's commandments that way. We have all sinned and come short. But when we commit our lives to Christ as our salvation, then the great purpose of our life must be to keep his commandments. And the evidence that we have committed our lives is that we do keep his commandments. One who has committed his life to Jesus, another term for this in the New Testament, is one who loves Jesus Christ. And the evidence that we love him is that we keep his commandments. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Here's the evidence that we really are Christians. Not only did it have to do with uh, this observation of Moses, the person of God and the honor that he requires, had to do with the position that the men occupied. You find an interesting provision early in the book of Leviticus. When a priest sinned, he had to bring the most expensive offering, a bullock. If a magistrate sinned, he could uh, bring a male uh, kid or a male lamb. Uh, If a common person sinned, he could bring a female. What was the difference in the sin of a priest and the sin of a ruler and the sin of just a common person? The difference had to do with the position that they occupied. And the more high the position, the more serious the sin because the greater influence that they would have in the lives of others. This is another reason why God dealt with them as he did. The third reason is this was a presumptuous sin. They knew better. 
You read in the book of Leviticus earlier that even sins done in ignorance are sins. In the fifth chapter of Leviticus, in the 17th to the 19th verses, you read this. If a soul sin and commit any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he knows it not, though he wist it not, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity, and he shall bring a ram without blemish out of the flock with thy estimation for a trespass offering unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his ignorance wherein he erred and wist it not, and it shall be forgiven him. It is a trespass offering. He hath certainly trespassed against the Lord. If we do something in ignorance, it extenuates but does not excuse our guilt. How great a load of guilt must rest on every person present here today. Think of the sins done in ignorance. And the only way that sin could be removed was through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. However slight we may think of sin, the only way any sin can be removed is through the atoning death of Christ and our faith in him. But then go on and add those presumptuous sins. Add those sins where you knew exactly what you were doing. You knew God didn't want you to do it, and you wanted to do it, and you did it anyway. What a fantastic load of guilt we carry around with us unless we've been absolved through the blood of the Lamb. There's a similarity in our day, it seems to me. We've mentioned the similarity still present in the Roman Catholic Church. There's a growing similarity in the wavering from this regulated principle in the Protestant Church all manner of innovations in worship services. Several years ago at Montreat, our denomination's uh, center in North Carolina, at uh, Young People's Conference, uh, when it came time to have the observation of the Lord's Supper, everyone wore a mask. Then at a given point, they all picked up posters and signs like, Socket to me, Holy Spirit, and paraded around the auditorium to jazz music. I was reading in a bulletin put out by Austin Seminary, an article that deals with worship by a a recent graduate of that seminary, in which he speaks of attending a service in which the participants were supposed to cast liturgical missiles through a fake paper stained glass window. Uh, His complaint was that this was a little phony. It should have been a real stained glass window. This is worship. Such innovations are of the character of the act of Nadab and Abihu. Drugs used for worship purposes or of a similar character. I was surprised to find out just how much this view is urged as a reason for taking drugs. Dr. Timothy Leary, the high priest of the drug religion, 
uh, makes this statement. Every human being is born divine, and the purpose of life is to rediscover your forgotten divinity. Like it or not, believe it or not, I'm convinced that the religious kick is the only experience that makes life worthwhile. Sounds like a fundamentalist, doesn't it? The only problem is the way in which he urges you to find this religious kick. The moment of revelation, when you're turned on to the whole process, which men of old call the mystic, is the whole purpose of life. All the concepts about virtue, hard work, and being good are part of that old con game. Religion to us is ecstasy. It is freedom. It is harmony. Kids should not let the fake television prop religion turn them off. The real trip is the God trip. And he would say you get it by taking drugs. And he would say that even if it was a 50% chance that taking LSD would cause you to go insane, in order to have this God trip, you ought to go ahead and take it, this religious ecstasy. Remember, your body is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, you find uh, this kingdom as you get on drugs. Now, this is a great element in the drug movement. It's offering strange fire. God will judge it. It is false worship. It is not acceptable. You do not make contact with God. You may make contact with something or someone, but it's not the God of the Bible. We've seen the sin of Nadab and Abihu. We've seen the severity of God. Notice the silence of Aaron. Read uh, after Moses' observation about God said this is what he would do. Then Aaron, it says, held his peace. Aaron was silent. As a matter of fact, uh, God, uh, or Moses, uh, instructs Aaron, Uncover not your heads, you nor your sons, and cover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die. Lest wrath come upon all the people, but let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. Think of how that father felt. As he stood there, he saw his two sons dead. What tremendous grief. Had they died in uh, any kind of accident, he would have been grieved. But to know that they'd been smitten by God under such circumstances, how must he have felt? And yet he held his peace. And he was told not to rend his garments or to mourn. He knew it was the Lord's doing. He knew that God was just, that God was vindicating his own person, his own holiness in doing this, his own glory. He had to choose, in a sense, between siding with God and siding with his sons. And he chose to side with God. He chose to say, in effect, by silence, Amen. What God did was what should have been done. Many times we are asked the question and we wonder, how will parents feel in that great judgment day when they see their son condemned to hell? You'll feel about like Aaron felt as he stood there. You'll side with God. You will say, Amen.
you will say this is right. God's honor should be vindicated. My children receive what they deserve. You will say, Amen. And you will hold your peace. Very solemn thought. A much more solemn thought is how he must have felt when he considered his own disobedience earlier in the case of the golden calf and what influence his going against the commandments of God at that time may have had on his own sons that led them to take lightly the commandment of God. How did he feel about that? Brethren, those of us who are present and who are Christians, we must learn, we must learn to revere God's ordinances, God's institution of worship, the preaching of the Word of God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. When we come to the house of God, we must come reverently. We must come humbly. We come and God meets with us. God is present. We tread on holy ground. Be careful how we come, how we live, how we listen. We must learn to submit to God's dealings with us and with our family and to side with God in his dealings. His honor, his glory must be first. He that loveth father or mother, child or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, said Christ. And for the non-Christians who are present, you must, must understand that that fire which leaps from the throne of God must consume either Jesus Christ or you. God gave his Son and his fire, his wrath consumed his own Son in order that he could forgive you. But if you come and you offer strange fire, you do not approach him through the sacrifice of his Son, then that holy wrath of God must consume you. You take his way or else. It was when Moses and Aaron came back out of the tabernacle that the fire of God leapt down and consumed that offering. Jesus Christ is now in his tabernacle, but one day he will come forth again. It says when he comes that he will come with his holy angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where are you? Have you really surrendered your will to Jesus Christ? Is his written word your commandment that you follow? Is his word your law? Is he your master? Have you put your sole hope of acceptance in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Do you trust him as your savior? And that's your sole hope. If you've never surrendered your will to Jesus Christ as your master and put your trust in him as your savior, do that right now, today. Let us bow in prayer. And you do it right now as we pray. You pray in your heart the prayer that I pray out loud. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge the immensity of my sin. 
the sins of ignorance, the sins of presumption, how many times I've gone against your will. Lord Jesus, right now, I want to yield my will to you. I want to invite you into my life and trust you and your sacrifice for my acceptance with God. I ask it in your name. Amen.